If you would, please turn in your Bible with me to Galatians chapter 6. We will be looking at verses uh, 7 and 8 this morning. But before we begin, I want to help set the context because Paul's epistles are written as a letter that is intended to be read from beginning to end. And so if we don't understand the context in which these verses fits, then we're liable to miss some important details. And so Paul is writing this letter, it's a circular letter to the churches in Galatia, and there's a problem. It seems that they have removed their focus from the gospel of Jesus Christ to something that's more of a works-based salvation. And it's not so much that they're completely changing, that they're teaching some other sort of religion, it's that they're taking the foundation of the gospel and they're adding to it. They're tweaking it and distorting what was already there rather than replacing it completely with something new. And so Paul writes them this letter, and he says in chapter 2, verses 20 and 21, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. This is the good news. Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, took on flesh. He came into this earth. He lived a perfect life. And then he went to the cross and he died to pay for our sins. But he didn't stay dead, he rose again. And because he rose again, those who believe in him have been given new life, and so we are to live in that new life. We receive the grace of the cross of Christ by grace through faith in Christ alone. And so moving on, we get to the next section where Paul has now clearly stated the gospel, and he's going to defend it. Theologically, and in chapter 5, verses 3 through 4, he says, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. These are strong, strong words. Something bad is going on in the churches in Galatia. That much is clear. And this is a defense, though. Paul has stated the gospel, and he's saying this is the only gospel. It's only by faith in Christ that there is salvation. So returning to the works of the law, taking on the circumcision, as was the controversy in the day, that has no benefit from your soul, for your soul. And in fact, it's only in recognizing that only Jesus saves, we find chapter 5, verses 13 through 6 10, which is where we understand what it means to live a gospel-centered life. And that's where we'll be focusing our attention this morning, particularly in chapter 6, verses 7 and 8, as a summary of the entire section. And this section can really be summed up by simply understanding that the gospel leads us to serve one another in love and to walk by the Spirit. In fact, those two things are inseparable, as we're going to see. And so the Spirit and the Gospel go hand in hand. Paul says that for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Then he gives them a warning. So, do not bite and devour. If you're sowing seeds to the flesh, stop it. 
Because the desires of the spirit and the desires of the flesh are at war with one another. They're opposites. They don't go hand in hand. And this helps us to understand then what does a church look like living in the gospel? A church that is filled with the spirit. Well, we see right off that sowing the seeds of the spirit means practically bearing one another's burdens. It fosters humility. And it would even be so specific as to support those who are responsible for teaching and caring for your souls. And that tells us that perhaps these are particular issues that were going on in Galatia. Those are applications that are given in the first part of chapter 6. And then Paul gives us the principle that we're looking at today. And so with that being said, let's read now in chapter 6, verses uh, 7 through 8. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your Holy Spirit. I thank you for the work that you're doing through the Spirit in this church in these people, and indeed in myself. Lord, I confess that I am weak and nothing without the help of the Spirit and that I am totally dependent upon you this morning. And so I ask for your help, God, that as I I make an attempt to exposit what you've given us in the Word about the Holy Spirit and apply it to our lives, that you would fill me up with the Spirit, Lord. This is what I desire, is that you would preach a better sermon than the one that has been prepared. And so we love you, God. It is for the glory of Christ that we pray. Amen. So in our day, there is often much talk about the Holy Spirit, right? And on on one side of the aisle, we have the charismatic tradition that spends a lot of time focusing on the power of the Spirit and modern miracles and speaking in tongues and all sorts of strange things that I will openly say are foreign to the Bible when you understand them properly. And then somewhere in the middle, perhaps you have another group that understands the Spirit rightly, that understands the Spirit brings unity, the Spirit does not bring disorder, but there's still a strong sense of mysticism where they try to drive a wedge between the Spirit and the Word of God. And then at the other end of the spectrum, perhaps there are are some Reformed folks who see the abuses of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit and in an attempt to avoid them, allow the pendulum to swing too far the other direction and would ignore the teaching that the Scripture has for us on the Holy Spirit altogether. And I'm here to tell you this morning that the Bible has much to say to us about the Holy Spirit, and it's for our sanctification and our edification that we come to understand these truths. God did not place anything in His holy book to confuse us, and He did not give us anything that is unprofitable for our souls. And so the principle here that's in view is extremely straightforward. Sow to the Spirit and reap eternal life. That's the command. That's the principle that we should all live by. 
But in a day when there's so much confusion about who the Spirit is and what He does, it's a legitimate question to just simply ask, what does that mean and how do I do it? That's where we want to spend our time this morning. How do I sow to the Spirit and how do I know that He's at work in my life and in my church? And so the the text begins then with a tone that is rather strong. God is not mocked. Do not be deceived. Both of these are very strong phrases. In particular, we see Paul using this phrase, do not be deceived, other times in the New Testament when he's warning them about an issue that could cost them their soul. The stakes are high. In other words, this is a gospel issue. If we get this wrong, this issue of sowing to the spirit versus sowing to the flesh, we have every reason to believe that our soul is in jeopardy, in other words. And so if we zoom out, we also see in verse 5 where he says, for each will have to bear his own load, talking about the testing, testing of, of one's own work. And this is somewhat obscure to us, but it seems clear in the original language that this is a reference to the judgment which is to come. Each one is going to bear his own load. Each one is going to have their fruits examined. And this is consistently a motivation for Paul. In fact, it's even a feature of his presentation of the gospel when he's standing before Felix on trial. In the book of Acts, he says, as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed. And so too, we should be alarmed because he writes elsewhere in 2 Corinthians 5.10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. There is coming a judgment and every single person that has ever existed will stand before the judgment throne of God. Those who are outside of Christ will be cast into the lake of fire. Paul is concerned for these people, these churches. He loves them enough to warn them to get off the tracks because there is a train bearing down on them. The issue in Galatia was severe. He mentions being cut off from Christ. And he says that if you will sow to the flesh, you will reap corruption, which is perhaps better translated as utter destruction. And so, again, we have this principle. Sow to the Spirit, reap eternal life, sow to the flesh, and reap destruction. And then he mentions this phrase that God is not mocked. Literally, it means to turn your nose up at someone. Right? These are the hearers of the word of God and not the doers of the word of God. And it made me think of Ezekiel chapter 33, verses 30 through 33. I'll read it to you quickly. As for you, son of man... Your people who talk together about you by the walls and at the doors of the houses say to one another, each to his brother, come and hear what the word is that comes from the Lord. And they come to you as people come and they sit before you as my people and they hear what you say, but they will not do it. 
For with lustful talk in their mouths they act. Their heart is set on gain. And behold, you are to them like one who sings lustful songs with a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument. For they hear what you say, but they will not do it. And when the time comes, and come it will, this is the judgment, they will know that a prophet has been among them. And so you see the consistent testimony of Scripture is that the people of God act like the people of God. The way that Paul phrases it is to sow to the Spirit, not the flesh. These are people who are attending worship service for the purpose of entertainment. Really, they're probably faithful attenders of the synagogue. They'll sit under the teaching week in and week out, but it's nothing more than a a sporting event to them. Right? Or perhaps it's an opportunity to demonstrate their knowledge or to sharpen their wit a little bit or to embrace that familial tradition that they love so much as so many who go to church today do. Well, bringing it back to Galatians, we need to understand that the Galatians are very religious people. They're probably faithfully attending the churches. In fact, this kind of controversy is the kind of controversy that is bred among churches that are very concerned to be in the right. Right? They're crossing their T's and dotting their I's, in other words. They care about doctrine, but they're embracing this false doctrine that's leading them to a works-based salvation that is ultimately going to cause them to walk away from Christ. And the red flag that Paul is telling them to look at is not necessarily the content of the teaching, but it's first and foremost the fruit of their life that this teaching is bearing forth. And so that's the litmus test. Does faith in your life produce good fruit? The book of James in chapter 2 tells us, verse 26, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Faith without works is dead. In other words, it does not have the capacity to bring salvation. Right? And one of the great heroes of the faith, Martin Luther, tried to put the book of James in the appendix to the Bible because of that very verse. He said that James's theology of justification was against Paul's theology. There is no conflict here. When we understand the gravity with which Paul is speaking to the churches in Galatia, and that he's telling them that if, if they will not sow to the Spirit, there will be eternal consequences to pay. This is exactly right in line with the point that James is trying to make. There is no tension between Paul and James in this context. Or at all. And so, immediately then we should see false doctrine and disunity are bad fruits of the flesh and not the work of the Spirit. And are they clinging to tradition? Perhaps. Are they, they clinging to works-based salvation? After all, we get a sense of gratification from a job well done, don't we? And whatever the case was, the Galatian churches had quenched the Spirit. And Paul knew it by their actions, not by a lack of manifestations of supernatural power. 
right? And that's very important. Paul knew that they had quenched the Spirit by their actions, not by lack of manifestations of supernatural power. And so he sends them this warning, you will reap what you sow. And understanding what's at stake then, let us turn our attention to the principle itself. This text is nothing complex. It means what it says and it says what it means. You don't need me to explain it to you. In fact, this is one of those rare times where an idiomatic phrase it translates extremely well into English. We use this phrase, don't we? You reap what you sow. We know exactly what it means. And so the focus is living a gospel-centered life. Walk by the Spirit. Keep in step with the Spirit. Paul admonishes the Galatians and indeed admonishes us. Now, it's, it's very important that we don't allow a little piece of theology to slip by us as we consider this admonition. We are responsible for what we do. And what we do affects our relationship with God. We are responsible for what we do, and what we do affects our relationship with God. Yes, God is sovereign over salvation from beginning to end. And we, at the same time, are responsible for the choices we make, the thoughts in our head, the words that come out of our mouth, and the actions that we engage in. But you say, oh, well, if you, if you read the Gospel of John, right? Jesus says the Spirit is like the wind. It comes and goes as it pleases. There's no contradiction here. Paul wrote this, and he's the same Paul who wrote Romans chapter 9 and Ephesians chapter 1. So we make meaningful choices to rebel against God, right? Whether it be because of the world, the flesh, or the devil, the indwelling sin nature that we all have. Anyone who says that he has no sin is a liar, says the book of 1 John, right? And yet, at the same time, we recognize that it's because we choose to engage in that rebellion against God, so what is God doing then in the Christian, right? If he says the Spirit comes and goes as he pleases, what's the Spirit doing? If I have to be born of the water and the Spirit, as Jesus tells Nicodemus, in order to enter the kingdom of heaven, how can I be born of the Spirit? How do I know that the Spirit is in my life? And if we go back to the Old Testament and just a few pages over from where we were in Ezekiel 36, verse 26 tells us, and I will give you a new heart. This is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And you understand that the Hebrew understanding of heart is representative of the entire inner man. Right? The heart is not just the mind. And it's not just the actions, it's the mind, it's the actions, and it's the will, the desires, right? The entire inner man is encompassed in this idea of receiving a new heart. That's the work of God. And so I think you can probably begin to see the relationship that, 
there is between God's work in giving us a new heart and us living by faith and sowing to the Spirit because He gives us a new heart within us. We are no longer bound by the chains of sin. We are free, in other words, to sow to the seeds of the Spirit. And so in, in Philippians 2, 12 and 13, this is a, a New Testament illustration of this principle then, of the compatibility of the will of man and the will of God. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so we understand that by faith we receive the Holy Spirit at our conversion and that the desires of the Spirit are contrary to the desires of the flesh. And therefore we're receiving this new heart from the Holy Spirit being transformed. And so it's natural then that the evidence of having the Holy Spirit is fundamentally answered by asking the question, what do you truly desire? Are these the desires of the flesh? Is that what's in your heart? Or is it a desire for God himself that lives within you? If you have a new heart, then your desires will be changing. See Galatians 5.17. And therefore, turning towards fleshly desire is not evidence of saving grace in your life. So what we sow then flows out of what is in our heart. How do I know that the Spirit is at work in me? How do I sow seeds to the Spirit? That's the, these are the two questions that we want to try to answer. And I think that it's helpful to see the Spirit as He's revealing Himself progressively throughout the testimony of Scripture Right, And so as I'm going through this list, I would encourage you not to get hung up on the particulars. Don't try to write everything down, okay? You'll miss the point. There's a lot here, but it's worth going through from cover to cover. And we understand that he's a person, right? In the Old Testament, you find that he has emotions, relationships, authority, and a will. And we see more particular in different books of the Bible the different aspects of the Spirit that he draws our attention to. We see in the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, that he's an agent of creation, right? He's the Spirit who hovers over the waters as God is creating planet Earth. He's an agent of judgment, and he's an agent of revelation, The book of Judges positions him as the deliverer of God's people. In Samuel, we see that the Holy Spirit is involved in electing a king of Israel. In Chronicles and Nehemiah, prophecy enters the scene. In Psalms and the wisdom literature, there is a link between the human spirit and the spirit of the Lord, which is wisdom. He's also presented as omnipresent and an agent of providence. So it is the Holy Spirit that works out God's sovereign decree in creation. In Isaiah, he enables the ministry of the Messiah and he restores the nation of Israel. In Ezekiel, he's the giver of the new heart. In the minor prophets, he will pour himself out on God's people, which Peter says was accomplished at Pentecost. 
in the Gospels. He is possessed by Jesus without measure, identifying Jesus as the Messiah. In Acts, he confirms apostolic authority, and he pours himself out on God's people just as he said he was going to do. Throughout Paul's epistles, he gives life. He's called the spirit of adoption. He indwells and fills believers, and he seals them, according to Ephesians 1. He also gives us the scripture in 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17, that the scripture is inspired, or it's literally breathed out by the mouth of God. This is the Greek word pneuma, and it's the same word for wind, spirit, and breath. There's intentional ambiguity there. That as God is exhaling the scripture, it's by the Holy Spirit that he gives us this divine speech. In the the letters of Peter, he's the agent of Christ's resurrection. In Jude, he helps us pray. And in Revelation, he warns the churches and he bids those who are willing to have eternal life to come to the only source where they can find salvation for their soul. But what we begin to see as we take a cursory walk through the entire Bible looking at all of these different passages where the Spirit reveals Himself to God's people is that the Spirit's work primarily focuses on the glory of Christ through applying redemption rather than just simply providing powerful and mystical experiences and knowledge of God's secret will. He's the worker of providence, the giver of the word, the resurrector of Christ, and our guarantee of an eternal inheritance, which God has promised us in his Son. And so the Holy Spirit mediates God's presence to the believer, to the church, and the world. In other words, it's through the Spirit that we commune with God. And so there's a lot here, obviously, and I don't want to overwhelm anyone, so I think that we can break this down into three headings or give three main divisions for the activities of the Spirit. Communion with God, the revelation of God, and help from God. Communion with God, revelation of God, and help from God. And so we see again in Genesis that it's the Spirit hovering over the water which breathes life over the planet as it were, giving the breath of life to the animals, to the birds of the sea and the... the (laughs) Birds aren't in the sea. He gives the breath of life to the birds of the air and the fish of the sea and he breathes the breath of life into the pinnacle of his creation, Adam, humankind made in the image of God. He tells Nicodemus in John chapter 3 that unless one is born of the water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And I would be remiss if I didn't take advantage of the opportunity to tell you that you must be born again if you do not know Jesus, right? If you are not following Christ, not simply assenting to acknowledge some facts that Jesus was real and that he did die on the cross. But if you are not following after Christ in his footsteps, you must be born of the Spirit. That's the only way that you can have spiritual life. 
That's the only way that you will find forgiveness for your sins is by faith in Christ alone. And that faith leads to repentance always because that's the work of the Spirit as He grants repentance and He restores what was lost because of your sin. But not only does He give life, He also indwells believers. And we think about God's promise to never leave us or forsake us. And he kept it so well that he comes to reside in us, in the person of the Spirit. According to 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 14, he seals his people, right? This is an image of the king dipping his ring into wax to seal up an envelope so that when it got to its destination, the people who would receive it would know that this is legitimate. This is the decree of the king. In other words, the king has said that we have an eternal inheritance and it's being guarded by the Holy Spirit. And if that's not enough, we see that he intercedes for us at the right hand of God. He he prays for us when we don't know how to pray according to Romans 8:27. He will pray for us according to the will of God. Number 2, the revelation of God. It needs to be said that God must reveal himself. He's transcendent and he's imminent and I know those are big Words, you don't have to pay attention to the words, just understand that God is both far away and He's extremely near at the same time. We cannot get to God on our own. We cannot comprehend the mind of God on our own. That's why He gives us His Word. Because 1 Corinthians chapter 2 says that this is the mind of God. It's the mind of Christ. And so God must reveal himself to us, and he does this through Christ and his word. And at times past, he did it through the prophets in Hebrews chapter 1. Right? That's what it says. Jesus himself is revelation and his word. But we think about the life and ministry of Jesus, who was indwelling in Jesus to identify him as the Messiah. It's the Spirit. The Spirit is in Christ, working out miracles and and identifying Him as the one who was long ago promised to come to save God's people from their sins. He inspired the Word. And so one of the chief ministries of the Holy Spirit then is the revelation of God to His people. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Peter tells us that this word is sufficient for all of life and godliness. And Hebrews chapter 3 tells us, Today, if you hear his voice, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. So not only did God speak through the Holy Spirit to give us the word, but in fact, in the word, he is still speaking today. That's why the writer of Hebrews continues to say that it's living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So again, through the word, the Holy Spirit is at work in our hearts. That's the Spirit's work. 
Well, let me ask you this then. When you come to God with an open Bible and a prayerful spirit, do you come with the expectation that he's actually meeting with you? Your devotional time should not just be an empty religious ritual that you try to do a couple times a week, five times a week, all seven days if you want. But you're actually communing with God in that moment. Do you enjoy your communion with God? Do you apprehend the promises and warnings that he gives us in the scripture? Because all of that's not only for its original audience, but he wrote that for us too. But not only did he give the word, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 tells us that it's only with the help of the Spirit who gave the word that we can interpret the word. And so we don't need these private revelations from God because he's given us the word of the Spirit. And it's objectively true. It's something that is outside of us and it's in our language and we can understand it. And we don't have to be second guessing and worrying about static on the radio channel, if you will. It's in black and white and it's easily comprehensible. That's the Spirit's work. The third division is help from God. And I thought about uh, Pilgrim's Progress, the, the allegory written by John Bunyan. This Christian is winding his way through all these different towns on his journey. He finds himself in a town called Vanity Fair. Christian, the main character of the story, he has to keep focus because all of the pleasures of the world are in this town. Temptation is abounding all around him and there's nothing that he can do except to keep looking ahead and trying to just get through it. This is a metaphor for the Christian life, right? Even as we leave here today, it's likely that all of us will face temptations and trials of some type. And when we come up against those, it's by God's Holy Spirit that we would overcome, right? The Spirit works in our heart to convict over sin and to teach us righteousness. This is John chapter 14. And he does this by changing our desires. Remember, the desire of the flesh is against the desire of the Spirit. And so there's something, if you're born of the Spirit within you, that begins to recognize that even though you can't quite put your finger on it, Something isn't right with that. That's not for me. I don't talk the way that I used to talk. I don't drink the way that I used to drink. I don't keep the company that I used to keep because they just don't understand this new life that I've been given because I have received the grace of God and I am walking in it and I am running towards the arms of my Savior at the end of this life. And I pray for them that they might know the peace and the joy that I've found in the eternal life that Jesus has given me. But I know this, that I cannot continue the way that I was. That's the work of the Spirit. And when the enemy would come to us like a roaring lion, right? This is biblical imagery. He's prowling prowling around like a lion looking to what? he wants to consume you if he can't take your salvation he will do his best to steal your joy and when he attacks how do you defend except with the sword of the spirit which again is this book 
God is making us pure in our inward being, and that's what the outpouring of the Spirit is all about. And this is not just true for the individual, but it's true as a church as well, collectively, corporately, as we gather together to worship Christ unified today. The Holy Spirit is here. Did you know that when we gather together, we gather to participate in the Spirit as a church family in a way that is unique from our personal and private devotions? Do you think that it's only because God is mean that he tells us in the book of Hebrews that we are not to neglect assembling ourselves together? It's because God communes with us here in the church, in the assembly of the believer. And obviously there are extenuating circumstances in which one may not always be able to gather but we have to recognize that we don't just gather to fulfill the law's demands. We gather because we desire fellowship and communion with God. And when we don't gather, we're missing out on that. Together in the church, the Spirit is stirring up love within us. That's what Hebrews chapter 10 tells us that we are to stir up love in one another. But if you go back to the book of Galatians, what's the first fruit of the Spirit? Love. And so we gather together to sow the seeds of the Spirit as one body, one church family, unified in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that's the work of the Spirit but he also provides power. And I know perhaps that makes some people nervous to say that the Holy Spirit provides power. But you need to understand that power is an important part of the Spirit's ministry. So when I say power, what exactly do I mean? Right? Not talking about using the force. These are not the droids you were looking for. No, when I'm talking about power, I'm talking about the Spirit coming alongside of us and working in us, even providentially, to supply us with what we need to complete the task that is before us. In other words, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. He gives power for preaching, according to 2 Corinthians 2. Two through five, and, and I would even add to that, it is a fearful thing to stand in the pulpit without the power of the Spirit. Evangelism. He gives power for evangelism according to First Thessalonians one, five through six. Romans eight thirteen tells us that the Spirit gives us the power to overcome sin in our lives. Again, sowing seeds to the Spirit. Romans 15:13 tells us that he provides hope. Right when your world is falling apart, you have no reason to be bright and cheery for whatever circumstance that you're finding yourself in, but you have this peace and this inexplicable joy. Right? This is joy that causes you to cling to Christ in spite of your trial. To be able to get a good sleep at night, even though you don't know that you're going to make it through the morning. That's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. 
And so let's try to put some shoe leather on these truths quickly. We have to understand that it's the Spirit working in us that sees us through to glory. He's changing our desires. He's shaping us into the image of Christ. Right? What does Ephesians tell us that we were created for? Except for good works. That's the Spirit's ministry. Do you think that it's important to sow to the Spirit then with these things in view? Absolutely. And I want to reiterate, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Right? I'm not talking about trying to earn your peace with God by doing all the right things. I think we have enough of that in our culture. No, we are saved by grace. But when God comes to someone, saving them as they are, it's never his intention to leave them there. When a person comes face to face with the grace of God, it's the most powerful force in the universe. They can't help but leave changed. This is the Spirit's work. And so if if you're sitting here and you're hearing this necessity to sow to the Spirit... Not to sow to the flesh, to reject the desires of the flesh and to pursue God. And you look at your life. And it seems pretty clear that you're lacking the spirit. Just let me ask, what then are you placing your confidence in? Why do you believe that you're saved and that when you die, God is going to let you into his heaven? if you do not show the fruits of the new birth. You understand what's at stake here? Especially for those that would claim the name of Christ, but they're sowing to reap a harvest of destruction. Wake up, O sleeper. Your soul is on the line. You must know Jesus. You will reap what you sow. And for Paul, this is a salvation issue. And going back to our text in Galatians, back a little bit into chapter 5, verses 19 through 21. It says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is sowing the seeds of the flesh. Sowing these seeds does not lead to eternal life. And this list is not intended to be comprehensive, by the way. It's not a checklist which you can say, oh, I I don't have that one on there. I'm, I'm probably good. Now, these are general categories. Immorality, a spirit of division, right? It's divisiveness, it's sensuality, it's idolatry, it's overindulgence. These are the, the fruits that sowing to the flesh will produce. How long must you continue planting these seeds? 
And, and if you're sitting there on the fence and you're just struggling with whether or not you've really been sowing to the flesh, I would just ask you the question, when you are honest with yourself about the desires that live in your heart, what are they? What do you allow to occupy your thoughts? Is it immorality and division? Do you feed your despair? What about your suspicion or your pride? There's not a temptation for that on social media, is there? These are sowing the seeds to the flesh and one day there will be a harvest of fruit. That fruit will be evaluated by the great king and judge. And the only hope that we have is to plead the blood of Jesus Christ. But these seeds are in contrast then with the fruit of the Spirit, starting in verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, which is important that it's at the beginning of the list. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. Hello. Self-control. That's ironic, isn't it, that self-control is a fruit of the Spirit? I'll let you just think about that one for a minute. Because it's only in the power of the Spirit then that we can say no to our fleshly desires, right? It's only the Spirit working through us that we then can begin to grapple with and contain our sin and the, the lusts of the flesh and the desires that are in our heart that used to characterize our old life no longer affect us. This is not an overnight change for many, but it is a necessary change as a result of the Spirit's working. So we see that the the Spirit works out love in us, which, by the way, is the greatest commandment, isn't it? Jesus said to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And in this, the whole law is fulfilled. And yet, that's the work of the Spirit in you. 1 John 3 tells us if there's no love, there's no Spirit. That's the harvest that we will reap. And of course, you have to ask the question, love according to whom? We're not talking about the kind of sappy Hallmark Channel love that you see abounding in our culture today. We're talking about the kind of love that is self-sacrificial that will open your home at an inconvenient time for someone in need. The kind of love that would even be willing to give up your life so that other people who have never meaningfully heard the name of Jesus Christ would know that He is the King of kings and Lord of lords and one day they will submit to Him. That's the kind of love that the Spirit produces. It's not about mysticism and electrical sensations and private revelations that have no benefit for upbuilding the church. It's not even about emotional experiences, which so many people today will trust in their emotional experiences, and the only thing that they walk away with from that is a false assurance of their salvation. Because when it comes to evaluating the fruit of whether they're sowing to the spirit or the flesh, the answer is that they're clearly sowing to the flesh, but they'll point back to a moment in their life when they had an emotional experience. Perhaps they responded to an altar call. Perhaps they were just sitting in their bedroom and were over come with grief over who they are but they never walked out of the prison cell they never walked out the door that was opened for them 
And so they continue to sow the seeds of the flesh. And the warning that Paul gives us today is that you will reap what you sow. Christianity is receiving Christ by faith and being transformed into his image by the Spirit's power. If we reap what we sow, then the mark of a true Christian is to plant the fruit of the Spirit instead of the fruit of the flesh. The mark of a true Christian is to plant the fruit of the Spirit instead of the fruit of the flesh. And so we seek to make application for this then, not just individually, but in the body of the church. And it's so easy to look outward and to pick on those that are not like us. That's not what we want to do this morning, no. So often, even... Obviously, there are problems in market-driven churches where people will go to a church because it has a program or because of the youth group or because of, you know, fill-in-the-blank, the kind of music that they like, whatever it is. And these things are preferences. But then there are those of us, and I put myself into this category, I'm preaching to myself here, where I would get so caught up in technical accuracy that looking for the fruit of the Spirit in the congregation would never even cross my mind. You understand that there are churches that can be technically accurate and cross their T's and dot their I's and have all the finer points of doctrine, the right confession of faith, expositional preaching, and yet they lack the Spirit. What are the lunch table conversations like? That's what you should be looking at before you join a church. Are they sowing seeds of discord? Is there a gap between the holiness in the sermon and the holiness in the congregation? These are the evidences of the Spirit at work in the body. Will they love you enough to correct when you sow the seeds of the flesh? Not because they're trying to walk around with a ruler and slap you across the knuckles every chance they get, but because they love you. And because Christ is very clear, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For us, we hope to be a church where the Spirit is at work, providing unity and providing Repentance that we would grow together in holiness and love for one another. This is the sign of a church where the Spirit is at work. And you will know that you will know it by their fruits, not by their programs. But we also need to consider for those of you that have children. The Bible has a lot to say about the Holy Spirit. One of those things is that your children need to experience the new birth too. It's not enough to just raise them up in the church. They need the gospel of Jesus Christ. They need to understand what it means to follow Christ. They need to recognize the fruit of the Spirit. They need to recognize so that when they're adults, what a a church is that has the Spirit. Because it's not going to be very long before they're off on their own making decisions about where they want to worship. If you want to prepare them to be faithful as adults, then make sure 
that they're sowing the seeds of the Spirit. And keep in mind that the only successful evangelism is evangelism that is Spirit-filled. And so let's draw this thing to a, a conclusion then. The Bible has a lot to say about the work of the Holy Spirit. He is very active in our lives, even if we can't always sense Him moving. That's the point. Do not fear talking about the Holy Spirit and don't ignore Him. He's all over the Bible from the first page to the last. It's through the Spirit that we have communion with God and with each other. It's through the Spirit that God reveals Himself to us in the Word. He gives us eyes to see and ears to hear. And it's through the Spirit that we receive help when we need it. Whether it be for preaching or evangelism, for fear, for conquering the sin in your life, that's the Holy Spirit's work. And He is most glorified when Christ is exalted. And so let's sow then the seeds of the Spirit because this is a, a matter of eternal life and death. Sow to the seeds of the Spirit and you will reap eternal life. And let me just say, last thought, that if you have been sowing the seeds of the flesh, today could be the day when you turn around and you start sowing to the seeds of the Spirit, you walk away from your sin and you trust in Christ because it's Christ alone that saves, not our works. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you, Lord. We are so grateful for your work in our lives, for the work of the Spirit. I pray, Lord, that you would do something with this message. That's all we desire, Lord, is to grow closer to you, to be made more like you, and to see others come to you. It's for the glory of Christ that we pray. Amen.